All right, well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and find your way to Judges chapter 14. If you're a guest among us or this may be your first time, we make it our ordinary practice is to journey through books in the Bible together, to open the scriptures and just walk straight through a book of the Bible. It's, a, it's our ordinary practice in the life of the church. And over the past several weeks, we've been doing that in the book of Judges. And so if you have a Bible, find your way to Judges chapter 14 as we pick up where we left off last week. Now, one of the things we love most about our God is also one of the things that probably frustrates some of us most about God. We love the fact that God is gracious towards his people. We love that God is a God of grace. But while we think about God's grace, we also recognize that though we love this about God, if we really kind of think deeply about what grace means, it can also lead us to some frustration It can also bring us into a point in which we are perplexed and confused by the ways of God and the will of God, wondering how and why would God operate in the ways that he does. And so the one thing we love most about God is also the very thing that if we think deeply about it can be something that perplexes us or confuses us, maybe even frustrates us about God, and that is his grace. Now, when we talk about grace, we're talking about God freely favoring people. We're talking about God showing kindness and goodness towards people who do not inherently or necessarily deserve it or have earned it in any discernible way. This is what it means for God to be a God of grace. And if God is a God of grace, that means God is not a God who can be coerced by us. It means that God is a God that cannot be impressed by us. It means that God is a God that cannot be controlled by us, that God is a God who cannot be manipulated by us. If God is a God of grace, then he is unpredictable, he is untamable, he is surprising, and many of his ways are perplexing. When you think about grace, you're talking about something that is, is in just by definition, God's grace is sovereign grace. Meaning God bestows grace upon whomever he wills, however he wills, whenever he wills. This is one of the wonders of God's grace. And he does this without any respect for merit, without any respect for what people deserve. You know, the Apostle Paul was thinking about this when he was writing the book of Romans and he was meditating upon the gospel of God's grace and how God loved him and how God redeemed him by sweeping him up in the story of Jesus. And he gets to this point in Romans chapter nine where he's so perplexed by the grace of God that he starts to ask a rhetorical question. And this is what he asks in Romans chapter nine. He says, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Meaning is God, is there something wrong with God in operating this way? But then he answers his own question. He says, absolutely not. Then he begins to quote what God said to Moses in the book of Exodus. And listen to what he says. He says, for God told Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend upon human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. It's dependent upon God who shows grace and shows mercy. Now, there are a few stories outside of the gospel story itself that illustrates the sovereign grace of God in a more perplexing fashion than the story of Samson here in Judges chapter 14. Because in Judges chapter 14, God is operating in the life of a man that you and I can look at and think, why in the world would God bless this man in this way? 
Why would God use a guy like that to accomplish such incredible things and to experience such wonderful power in his life? Why would God do that in a guy whose character seems to be so corrupt and so undeserving of God's activity and of God's provision and of God's power? You see, the story of Samson is a story that showcases the God of sovereign grace. It's a story that if you read closely, you might be frustrated by it. But my hope is that if you read this story closely and you begin to see the God of sovereign grace, you won't stay perplexed. Instead, your perplexity will turn to praise. Instead, you scratching your head in curiosity, how can God be like this and operate like that? Instead, you take all of that and you turn it over to praise and wonder, awe, that you would be humble before this God that we are learning about in the story of Samson. So here you have Judges chapter 14. We're going to cover a long swath of text. And if you are with us last week, Judges chapter 13 told us about the birth of Samson. And if you remember from last week, Samson's birth was a miracle birth, that God showed up to a couple who had never had kids before, a woman who was barren, unable to have kids, and God said, I'm going to do a miracle in you. I'm going to bring, I'm going to give you a baby. A child is going to come to you, and this is going to be a special child. And if you remember, God would tell Samson's parents that this baby is to be a Nazarite from birth. That means this baby was to be consecrated completely to God, that this child would belong to God and serve a special purpose. So you come to the end of chapter 13, and everybody's hopeful, everybody's excited, everybody's uh, thrilled about the birth of this child. Well, this child must grow up to become a wonderful man an admirable man, a respectable man, a a trustworthy man. But then you meet the man. You meet the man in chapter 14, and you find that Samson Samson is is so far from being a respectable, honorable, imitatable person. In fact, when you step into chapter 14, you're going to see a man who, of all the judges, of all the deliverers that God raises up in the book of Judges, Samson is by far the most flawed. He's by far the most corrupted judge out of all the judges in this book. And he's so corrupt, he's so flawed in his character, you cannot help but notice this dramatic disconnect between his calling and his character, between what God said he would do and what he was supposed to do, and then his character being so far disconnected and removed from his calling. It's not even funny. In fact, it's so dramatic, you're wondering, well, surely God is going to give up on this guy. Surely God isn't going to use someone like this. And then that's where, at that point, is when you begin to see God as a God of sovereign grace, and he doesn't operate according to the boxes that we oftentimes put him in in our Christian faith. So what I want to do is I want to sweep through uh, chapters 14 and 15, and I want to call attention to the aspects of Samson's character that, that should have, in a sense, turned God off. It's a sense that should have turned God away. So we're going to read through the story of summarized parts, identifying aspects of Samson's character, beginning verse 1 of chapter 14. We read that Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his father and his mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, can't you find a young woman among your relatives or among any of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Verse four, now his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord who wanted the Philistines to provide an opportunity for a confrontation. We'll come back to that in a minute. At that time, the Philistines were ruling Israel. 
Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Suddenly a young lion came roaring at him. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat, obviously. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went and spoke to the woman because she seemed right to Samson. So there's a couple things that begin to show up in Samson's character really early on in the story. The first of which is that Samson seems to, very, to be a very impulsive guy. He's a very impulsive guy. He, he lives according to his senses. This is called attention to right off the bat where we're told about Samson seeing this young woman and, and then we're told that uh, she seemed right to him. Another way of translating that literally is that she was right in his own eyes. He was an impulsive guy driven by his senses. He wasn't a man of faith. He wasn't a man who was walking by faith in his God, trusting in what God had declared over him in chapter 13. Instead, he's now grown up and he's living according to his senses. He's a very impulsive man driven by his desires. What's interesting about this point is when you step into, uh, you move further in the book of Judges and you're gonna find that Samson basically illustrates what the people of Israel were like at this time. You get into chapter 17 and you read the description. The people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. The same phrase that's found at the end of verse 7. But then you get into chapter 21. The same phrase shows up there. That Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Much like the whole nation of Israel, Samson was an impulsive personality. He was more sensual than he was spiritual, and this is going to cause him a lot of problems in his story. But not only is he impulsive in this story, he's also unteachable. Because when he sees this young Philistine woman, he's attracted to her. He wants to marry her. His mom and dad step up. They try to intervene. They try to speak some wisdom into his life, but he's not hearing it in verse 3. They approach him and says, why are you going after a Philistine woman? Isn't there someone who is a part of the people of Israel, someone who trusts in Yahweh and believes in the Lord? Now, when his mom and dad steps up in verse three, they're not acting out of some sort of racial prejudice. When when they counsel him that he shouldn't marry a Philistine woman, it has nothing to do with the race of that woman. It has everything to do with the faith of that woman. Essentially, they're counseling Samson to be equally yoked with whoever he would marry. It's the same counsel we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where it's very unwise for a Christian to step into a marriage wide-eyed and perfectly aware of the fact that the person they're marrying is not a believer or not a Christian. This is what his parents are counseling in this moment. We know this because Moses married a non-Jewish woman. And there was nothing wrong with his marriage. We know this because the book of Ruth, which follows on the hills of the book of Judges, is also the story of a woman who wasn't Jewish, but yet she would marry a Jewish man. And that family would be a very special family in the storyline of the Bible, because actually their marriage would lead to the birth of the Messiah, birth of the Savior. So it's not a racial dynamic here. It's a spiritual dynamic. And they're counseling their son. They're trying to speak wisdom into his life, but he's not hearing it because he is unteachable. So you have an impulsive guy, you have an unteachable guy, then you pick up in verse eight. It says, after some time when he returned to marry her, that is this young Philistine woman, he left the road to see the lion's carcass and there was a swarm of bees with honey in the carcass. He scooped some honey into his hands and ate it as he went along. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they ate it. 
but he did not tell them that he had scooped the honey from the lion's carcass. What you begin to see about Samson in this moment is that he was also irreverent. He was irreverent in the sense that he showed no respect for the commands of God in his life. As a Nazarite, he wasn't to come in contact with any carcass, any dead body. Here now, he's scooping honey out of the belly of a carcass. But not only is he showing no respect for the commands of God, he's showing no respect for his parents' conscience. Because he would take that same honey and bring it to them and give it to them without telling them where it came from. He knew good and well that this honey came from a place that would have, in their minds, they would have considered to be defiling. It would have affected them in a negative way. So here you have Samson, this young, impulsive, unteachable guy, also being irreverent, showing no respect for God's commands and no respect for the consciences of those around him, including his mom and dad, his parents who loved him more than anyone else in the world. Then you pick up verse 10, and they get to the point where the wedding is going to take place, and they throw a a bachelor party. And all these people show up, all these men come in verse 11, these 30 men come to accompany Samson, and then verse 12, Samson, uninitiated, unsolicited, says to everyone there, let me tell you a riddle. If you can explain it to me during the seven days of the feast and figure it out, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you can't explain it to me, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they replied. Let's hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And so Samson throws out, puts down a wager. He says, I'm going to share a riddle, riddle and we're going to have some stakes at, in play, because essentially Samson wanted some new underwear and some new suits. So he made up this riddle to, to kind of win that. But he also tells them that if I lose, or, and if you guys figure out the riddle, then I'm going to give you all of this. And, and then he comes up with a riddle that was quite honestly impossible for anyone to figure out. There was no way any person in that room could have figured out the riddle because that riddle was tied to his encounter with the lion in the wilderness. And so nobody knew about that, not even his mom or his dad. So essentially what you begin to discover about Samson's character at this point is that he was highly manipulative. He knew how to play people to get what he wanted. He knew how to set people up to fail so that his desires could be fulfilled. In this case, his desires for some clean underwear and some new suits. So he's being very manipulative and coming up with this riddle because no one in the room could have known the answer to this riddle. It's not unlike when Bilbo meets Gollum in the mountains. If you're familiar with the story of the Hobbit, he and, he and Gollum get into a riddle war, riddle exchange, and then suddenly, right before Bilbo's about to lose, he says, he says what's in my pocket? And Gollum, there's no way he can know what was in his pocket, but he gave him three guesses. He guessed wrong every time. Bilbo won and was able to get away with the ring. That's essentially what's going on here. Bilbo in that moment was being somewhat manipulative and sneaky, and here Samson is being manipulative and sneaky. Then, in, So we're told after three days that they were unable to explain the riddle, and then on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, the 30 men that were in attendance, they go to her and say, Persuade your husband to explain the riddle to us or we will burn you and your father's family to death. Now that sounds extreme. It's a little extreme for a wager over underwear and clothing, but this was the world of judges. This was the brutal world that they were a part of. And so these people uh, threatened to kill her and her father's family. Then they asked the question, did you invite us here to rob us? So Samson's wife came to him weeping. Of course she's gonna cry about this and said, you hate me and don't love me. You told my people the riddle, but haven't explained it to me. 
Look, he said, I haven't explained it to my father or mother, so why should I explain it to you? If they don't know the answer to the riddle, why should I have explained it to you? But then she kept crying for seven days of the whole feast. She kept weeping through the feast. She wasn't very excited about what was happening. And then eventually, at the end of verse 17, we're told that she nagged him so much. She nagged him so much that eventually Samson broke and, she, and he explained the riddle to her. She goes and tells it to her people on verse 18. On the seventh day before sunset, the men of the city said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? They knew the answer. And then Samson, who's quite a wordsmith in this story, he says, if you hadn't, <laughs> if you hadn't plowed with my young cow, you wouldn't know my riddle. Now, uh, if you're a newlywed or newly married, referring to your wife as a young cow is never, never a good thing. I don't know how that worked back in the day, but that's what he says there. Basically, because of their relationship, her relationship with those men, uh, they, were, they were able to figure the riddle out. But then in verse 19, something surprising happens. We're told that the Spirit of the Lord then came powerfully upon Samson. And then Samson goes down to Ashkelon. He goes to a different town, and he kills 30 men. He stripped them and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. In a rage, you might want to make note of that word, in a rage, Samson returned to his father's house, and his wife was given to one of the men who had accompanied him. So not only do you find Samson to be impulsive, unteachable, irreverent, manipulative, here you're discovering just how volatile he is. That he acts, he acts in a rage, he acts out rage in this story. He responds in a way that is shocking to everyone involved. He's very volatile. And his volatile personality will really, will really spill out and come to a head in chapter 15. If you look at 15 verse 1, because we're told that sometime later during the wheat harvest, Samson decides he wants to make up with his wife. And so he grabs a young goat and he brings it to her house. Instead of flowers, he brings a young goat. Guess that's what they liked back in the day. He takes this young goat as a gift, visits his wife and says to her, or says, I want to go to my wife in her room. But her father would not let him enter. I was sure you hated her, her father said, so I gave her to one of the men who accompanied you. Isn't her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Why not take her instead? You see, his father-in-law knew how volatile Samson is, and he wanted nothing to do with this guy. He wanted to appease Samson. So although he's given his wife to another man, there's a younger sister there that he offers to him, hopeful in hope that that would appease him, and he would not erupt again like he did earlier. Well, verse 3 says that Samson said to them, this time I will be blameless when I harm the Philistines. So there was something about what Samson did earlier that made him blamable. There was something about the way he responded by killing those 30 men in Ashkelon that made it not right, that he was culpable. He felt blame, that he didn't do something that was considered right, even though he was empowered by the Spirit to do it. And then you get here and he says, this time I will be blameless. Essentially, what you discover about Samson's character in this moment is that he was a guy who oftentimes tried to justify himself, that he's about to do things very similar to what he previously did, but he feels like he's more justified in doing that in this moment, saying, declaring, nobody is saying this to him. He's not seeking counsel from anyone. He's just taking it upon himself, saying, I'm going to be blameless in what I'm about to do. And so what does he do is he torches uh, the fields of the Philistines, he goes, he grabs some foxes, he ties their tails together, uh, attaches a torch to the tails of two foxes and just releases them into the field. Now, this is an ingenious strategy to burn some wheat fields and to burn some grain fields because if you just kind of attached one torch to one tail of a fox, 
That fox is gonna run through the fields in kind of a straight line and the flames aren't gonna get very far and very wide. But if you tie a couple of foxes together and you release them, they're gonna pull each other and they're gonna zigzag across the fields together, burning and torching everything in a much more effective and a much more efficient manner. And so this is what he does. He burns the fields and the Philistines find out about it. They say, well, who did this? They learned that it was Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because he took Samson's, because his father-in-law took Samson's wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines went to her and her father and burned them to death. So the very consequence that was threatened to the girl and her family in chapter 14, it actually comes to fruition in chapter 14. It's just a brutal world. Then you look at verse seven. Then Samson told them, because you did this, I swear that I won't rest until I have taken vengeance on you meaning he's gonna live out eye for an eye. He's gonna live out tooth for tooth for tooth. A blood feud has now been ignited between him and these Philistines. Because not only was Samson volatile, not only did he have a tendency to justify his actions, he was also very vengeful. And he would be vengeful in this story. Verse eight, he tore them limb from limb and they then went down and stayed in the cave at the rock of Etam. Then the Philistines go up and they camped in Judah and they raided a town called Lehi. So the men of Judah said, why have you attacked us? They replied, we have come to tie Samson up and pay him back for what he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the cave at the rock of Edom and they asked Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines rule over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I've done to them what they did to me. And they tell him, well, we've come to tie you up and to hand you over to the Philistines. What you begin to discover about Samson in this moment is that he was a loner that he had no friends in Israel. Nobody had his back. He was all on his own, probably because he was such a selfish, volatile, manipulative man of a flawed character. He had no friends, he had no community, and his own people are now going to tie him up and hand him over to the Philistines. So they do that. Then when you drop down to verse 14, listen to what happens. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came to meet him shouting, The spirit of the Lord once again came powerfully on him and the ropes that were on his arms and wrists became like burnt flax and fell off. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, took it and killed a thousand men with it. Supernatural power, supernatural strength, supernatural endurance. But then in verse 16, he writes out a song and listen to his song. He says, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Now, the rhyming and the scheming doesn't come very well, doesn't come through very well in English. The word for donkey and the word for heaps and the word for like a lot of men, they, they're all basically, they sound the exact same in Hebrew. So one of the best equivalents I could probably think of in light of this to translate is with the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in mass." With the jawbone of an ass, I have killed a mass. That's kind of the idea here. And so he writes this little poem and he throws it out there. But then notice what he does in verse 17. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone. It's like he was dropping the mic and walking away. He felt very proud of what he had accomplished, very proud of what he had done. But then when you get to verse, so really what you find here is another flaw in Samson's character. Because although the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and empowered him to overcome the Philistines, when he wrote out his song, who is he celebrating? The only person he is celebrating in that song is himself. He's boasting in what he had done and what he had accomplished. He gives no reference to his God, no reference to the Spirit's power. And so another flaw in his character is the fact that he was a self-absorbed man. 
He was entirely self-absorbed. Therefore, he gives no thought. He gives no credit. He gives no attention to God. In fact, all through chapters 14 and 15, Samson doesn't talk to the Lord one time. He isn't spoken to by the Lord one time. He's entirely self-absorbed. And the only time he begins to speak to the Lord is when you get to verse 18. And even then, there's a selfish motive at play. Verse 18, the first time he talks to the Lord, it says, he became very thirsty and called out to the Lord. You have accomplished this great victory through your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So God split a hollow place in the ground at Lehi and water came out of it. He needed water, God gave it. After Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. That is why he named it Enachari, which is still in Lehi today. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. The only time Samson talks to the Lord in this story is when he needs the Lord. It's a very convenient relationship. It's a very convenient interaction that Samson would cry out to the Lord in his time of need. But what's remarkable is that God responded with grace. Although his character is so jacked up, his character is so flawed, at the end of the story, God still gives him water because God is a God of grace. And much of the grace that you see at play in this story can be accurately described as scandalous. It's scandalous that God would treat this guy so well given how brutal he's been and how vengeful he's been, how volatile he's been, how self-absorbed he's been. The fact that God would give him water in his time of need speaks to the scandal of grace. But even more than that, you find scandalous grace at play when three times over the course of this story, we're told the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson Three times you see the Spirit of the Lord anointing him and empowering him for a purpose, for a reason. Check it out, beginning in chapter 14, verse six, here's that phrase. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him. You jump into chapter 15, verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him. What are we to make of this? What are we to make of a God who would, give his spirit to such a corrupt dude and empower him to do things that were quite vicious and quite ruthless and quite rough. Well, I think there's a couple of things we can say about it. The first observation I would like to make is we need to recognize that as you walk through the scriptures, there is a distinction drawn in the scriptures between the gifts or the empowerment of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit. You see a distinction between the gifts and empowerment of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in the Scriptures, most notably in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. There you have a situation where you have a church called the church at Corinth, and this church was called to be holy. They were called to belong to God. They were called to represent God. But there was a dramatic disconnect between their calling and their character. This church was filled with disciples who were quite selfish, quite self-absorbed, who weren't looking out for the interests of others. They were only concerned about themselves. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit was at work in the church. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit was manifesting himself powerfully among them. Miracles were being performed. Displays of power were being exercised in the life of that church. It was a very gifted church, but it wasn't a very fruitful church. You get into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul would call them out on this. Recognize, yeah, you guys are gifted, but you don't have much fruit. And in the end, if you're gifted, but don't have much fruit, in the end, you're ultimately going to be useless. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, meaning if I'm gifted to speak, 
If I have that gift, but I don't have the fruit of love in my life, I'm noisy, I'm a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith and I, that I can move mountains but do not have love, the fruit of the Spirit, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. There's a distinction being drawn between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Now, you may want to ask, why is that? Why would God gift someone who wasn't very godly? And I don't have an answer to that apart from his grace. When you read about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians, understand that the word translated spiritual gifts literally means grace gifts, that God gives power to people according to his will, to whomever he wills, however he wills, whenever he wills. It's an act of sovereign grace for God to empower people in these kinds of ways. But it is possible for a person or even a church to be gifted spiritually yet lack godliness. And if that is true of our church, may God, may God have mercy on us. May God be kind towards us because what happens if you have a gifted church but a fruitless church, you have a church that can create a lot of harm in the city of Seattle people who can do a lot of damage to people who may be gifted but not godly. I think we've seen that happen in our city. I think we've seen throughout the history of the church in our city very gifted individuals, gifted leaders. But yet at some point there was a breakdown in the godliness of the character and as a result the fallout between the disconnect between their giftedness and their godliness, people got hurt. And what you see in the story of Samson is that you have a very gifted man gifted by God's grace alone, but yet a guy who wasn't very godly and a lot of people got hurt. You may be gifted, but your giftedness is not a sure indication of your godliness. Being talented is not the same thing as being spiritually mature. What we need in the life of our church and what the city of Seattle needs isn't simply gifted leaders, we need godly leaders. We don't just need gifted Christians. We need godly Christians. We need people who pursue the fruit of the Spirit, not just the gifts of the Spirit. We need transformation to occur in our character so that the disconnect between our character and our calling may be shrunk, may be diminished. So that, yes, we read through the Scriptures and we see the high calling that God gives to his people in this world. And when we recognize that that our character isn't in sync with that calling. We repent quickly. We confess our sins. We seek help from other people to come back around so that that disconnect may be bridged and that gap may be shrunk. Just because you're godly doesn't mean, I mean, you're gifted doesn't mean you're godly. And what we want in the life of our church is godliness. We want all of the gifts in our church to be anchored, deeply rooted in a godly character because that's when you're gonna find people being served best. That's when you're gonna find people being led into a flourishing relationship with God and a flourishing relationship with one another. You're not gonna see the fallout that you see in a story like Samson's. You're not gonna see the fallout that you see, quite frankly, in a city like Seattle's right now as there are lots of disciples who are still hurting, still reeling, from giftedness being detached from godliness. That's a dangerous equation. And I would encourage you to pray for our church, pray for our leaders, pray for one another, that that would not be true of us. Just because we're gifted, that doesn't make us, it doesn't make us godly. So that's one dynamic we want to consider in light of this story. 
But then the other dynamic, again, coming back to this idea of sovereign grace, because you may be wondering, how can God use someone like this, someone like Samson? And the moment we begin to ask the question, how can God use someone like this? We, <laughs> we must humble ourselves and realize, well, how can God use someone like us? And there's a sense in which you read the story of Samson, and you should read it as kind of like a mirror into where disconnects can arise in your life, disconnects between your character and your calling. And so I just want to ask you some questions, ask you some questions in light of Samson's story to just kind of assess yourself and consider yourself in light of this story. Because if we wonder how can God use someone like this, we have to consider how God can use someone like us. So here are some of the questions. First question In your life, in any discernible way, do you lack self-control? Do you lack self-control in any area of your life? Are you more impulsive? Are you sensual rather than spiritual? Proverbs chapter 25 verse 28 would tell us that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. It's a dangerous thing to lack self-control, to be an impulsive person. You know, there was a study came out of New Zealand not too long ago where, they, where some observers, researchers, studied 1,000 kids over four decades. And they took in every factor of their lives from their educational choices, their career choices, their relational choices, their family makeup, their IQ. They factored in everything. And the one thing that they say contributed most to the flourishing of those kids in adulthood was impulse control. Out of all the things in their life, impulse control was the one factor that anchored them most in the world that is. Self-control is a very important thing, but it's something that many of us may be lacking, and if we're lacking, it can be devastating. So we want to ask, do we, our lives lack self-control in any area? Another question, are you teachable? Are you a teachable person? Do, do, are people allowed to ask you questions? Are people allowed to engage you in conversations that could lead you to learning new truths or discovering new truths? Are you a teachable disciple? Another way of thinking about this is if in your discipleship, do you only ask questions because you're seeking a certain answer or because you are seeking answers? If you're asking questions in in a search for a certain answer, you're not very teachable. But if you're asking questions because you're sincerely seeking answers, that qualifies as a teachable spirit, and that's a healthy, holy, humble thing. So you want to consider whether or not you're teachable. Now the question, do you respect God's commands? Do you have respect for the commands God gives us in the scriptures? But not only do you respect his commands, do you respect other people's consciences? When it comes to more gray areas that aren't clearly spelled out in the scriptures, when it comes to the the various freedoms that we have in Christ, and you find that somebody's conscience is bothered by something that doesn't bother yours, are you quick to exercise self-restraint? Are you quick to kind of put yourself under a restraint for the sake of another person? That's what it means to be sensitive to another person's conscience. That's what it means to be the opposite of Samson, who was irreverent. But then also a question, do you use people to get what you want? Do you find yourself calculating your speech and calculating your questions because you have an end in mind and you're trying to solicit this end by how you arrange your words and put them together and the way you approach another person? Do you manipulate people in the way that you interact with them? Another question, are you easily and often outraged? Are you easily and often outraged? Remember, Samson was outraged because he lost a bet. And I'm sure there are things that are just as silly that we get outraged and angry over. Another question, do your feelings lead you to self-justify? Are you constantly defending yourself? 
Anytime somebody might raise an issue or ask you a hard question that might hit too close to home, are you quick to throw up the defenses and justify yourself and to discredit whatever it is they're bringing up in your life? Let me say this, if somebody approaches you and they ask you a hard question that identifies maybe a character flaw in you, instead of quickly justifying and defending yourself, what if you just kind of step back for a moment? And what if you went to an objective third party and you asked them, hey, this was brought to my attention recently and is this true in what you have observed in me? Instead of defending yourself, why don't you humble yourself and try to move towards growth and find out whether or not there's any credit or any weight in whatever accusation or whatever observation has been brought to you. Another question to consider is, are you vengeful? And there are many ways to be vengeful. It doesn't require you taking a jawbone and slaughtering a bunch of people. You are vengeful every time you harbor bitterness in your heart towards somebody who's offended you. You are vengeful every time you are resentful of someone who has harmed you and you withhold forgiveness from them. That is a form of vengeance that we must check. That's a form of vengeance that we must confess and repent of. It's not godly. Other question, are you sinking into community? Or is your relationship with Jesus all about you and Jesus? If your relationship is all about you and Jesus and not a we and Jesus dynamic, chances are you're not sinking into community and you're living a Lone Ranger lifestyle and that lonely, that lonely approach to life isn't good for you. And it's not good for anyone else. Proverbs chapter 18 verse one would put it this way. It says, it's almost as if the writer of Proverbs had Samson's story in mind because the writer says, one who isolates himself, that is one who lives a lonely life, who doesn't sink into community, pursues selfish desires. There's nobody around them that can check them, that can call them out, that can help put up a block so they're not pursuing selfish desires. He goes on, he rebels against all sound wisdom. In other words, he's living a foolish life. Living a single life in the sense that you're detached or isolated from community is a foolish way to live. But then another question, are you overly preoccupied with yourself? Are you preoccupied with yourself? There was a New York Times article published by David Brooks, a guy who I like a whole lot, and he talks about what some of the dangers of being self-preoccupied. And this is what he says. He says, self-preoccupied people have trouble seeing that their talents come from outside themselves and can only be developed when directed towards something else outside themselves. Enclosed in self, they come to believe that their talents come from self and are for themselves locked in a cycle of insecurity and self-validation. He says their talents are never enough and they end up devouring what they have been given. Saying a self-preoccupied person who has no reference for God's grace in their lives, they become, they become locked in a cycle of insecurity and self-validation. They begin to look a lot like Samson. But not only do we want to consider whether or not we are preoccupied with ourselves, we also want to consider, do you only pray as a last resort? Do you only pray to God when you need something from God? How much adoration makes up your prayer life? How much praise makes up your prayer life? Are you only going to God in your times of need? If so, you might not have a healthy, holy, humble relationship with the God of sovereign, of sovereign grace. And so you want to ask yourselves these questions in light of this story because the moment we say, how can God use someone like Samson, we realize very quickly that, you know, how can God use someone like us? And what this does is it drives us to his grace. It helps us to see the God of sovereign grace a little bit more clearly. 
helps us to respond to the God of sovereign grace a little bit more humbly and a little bit more joyfully. It helps us come to the God of grace in awe and in wonder of who he is and what he is about. You see, the scandal of sovereign, the scandal of grace is that God works in and through sinful human beings like us to accomplish his sovereign purposes. That's the scandal of grace. This is what's happening in the story. If you come back to verse four of chapter 14, just for a moment, let me remind you of what was said there. Verse four of chapter 14, now his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord. That is Samson's desire for this Philistine woman. The writer is saying that that desire is from the Lord. It's a strange thing for him to say. But he says, he goes on, It says that the Lord wanted the Philistines to provide an opportunity for a confrontation. In other words, the Lord knew Samson so well. And so when this desire swelled up, he didn't didn't in his grace stomp out that desire. Instead, he, he fanned that desire into flame. This desire was from the Lord. Why? Because the Lord was seeking to stir up a confrontation, a conflict between the Philistines and the people of Israel. Now, the reason why that is significant is because the people of Israel were very comfortable enslaved to the Philistines. They liked being ruled by the Philistines. And the people of Israel in that moment were not seeking to be delivered by God in any discernible way. And so what God does in his scandalous grace, he ignites a conflict. He stirs the pot so that a conflict could, be, could occur between the people of Israel and the Philistines, forcing the issue so that his people could sober up forcing the issue so that his people could realize we're not where we belong. We're not enjoying the presence of God. We're not seeing the promises of God being fulfilled. And so you have this scandalous grace of God that says, look, I'm gonna work through in and through this sinful Samson because I know if I, if I do so, he's gonna cause a war. And that's essentially what, what happens. It's the scandal of grace that God would not only work in Samson's life, but he would work through Samson's sin to accomplish his purposes for his people. And it is that realization, it is that dynamic that drives us to consider our incredible gospel. Because this leads us to the gospel where you consider, okay, how did the gospel, what is is the makeup of the gospel? Well, the gospel is the story of how God works in and through sinful people to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Do you remember who Jesus called to be his disciple? Do you remember a guy named Judas? Do you remember this guy who's, who would be referred to as a child of the devil, this guy who would be the betrayer of Jesus? Yet Jesus called this guy into his fold. And the way Jesus talks about Judas in the Gospels, the way the Gospels would talk about Judas, it leads us to believe a very similar dynamic is occurring there where God is working in and through the sinful choices of a human being to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And he would use Judas to lead his son to the cross. And in a brilliant stroke of grace-filled irony, God would use the sinful choices of human beings to send Jesus to the cross so that human beings might be saved and delivered from their sinful choices. It's a remarkable sovereign grace. It is a mind-blowing reality of God. This is why when you get into Acts chapter two, you read that verse that puts together the sovereignty of God and the death of Jesus along with the culpability of human beings. Acts chapter 22, verse 20, 
Acts 2, verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus, and here's the sovereignty of God, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, meaning God killed Jesus. God planned for his crucifixion. Well, how did God get his son to the cross? Well, he worked in and through the sinful choices of human beings that would crucify him that would rebel against him, that would wage war in response to the presence of Jesus in Jerusalem. That's essentially what God does in the gospel. You hear this, and I don't know how your heart responds to this dynamic, and I don't really know how to encourage your response to this story. There's not really a real clean takeaway to say, okay, in light of this, do you go do this? No, this is one of those stories that brings us to a point where the only real response we can give is a response of humility, is a response of gratitude, is a response of just wonder, standing in awe of who God is and what God is like, that he is the God of sovereign grace, that he is the God who works in and through sinful human beings to accomplish his sovereign purposes. He did it in Samson, he did it in Judas, and quite honestly, he's doing it today every time he uses us to advance his gospel in this city and around the world. We worship and we serve a God of sovereign grace. The gospel reminds us of that. The gospel roots us in that. The gospel assures us of that. Let's pray.